It's Thursday, February 17th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. In good medical news, a woman in New York appears to have been cured of HIV. The woman also had a form of leukemia, which made her a candidate for a transplant of stem cells that carry a rare genetic mutation that blocks HIV. She received those stem cells in the form of umbilical cord blood from a newborn. While scientists are encouraged by this development, treating HIV with transplants is still risky and costly, and really only an option for those that need them for treatments for other diseases like cancer. Betsy McKay, senior writer at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Next, we're learning more about a massive human smuggling ring that was led by U.S. Marines stationed at Camp Pendleton. This story dates back to 2019, where Marines were recruited to pick up immigrants near the border and drive them inland to be released. The Marines made perfect smugglers because no one would suspect them and wave them past various checkpoints. It was obviously all about money, and soldiers could make anywhere from $500 to $750 per immigrant that they picked up. In the end, many of the Marines involved in the plot were let go on technicalities. Emily Green, reporter for Vice News, joins us for how it all went down. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. She is now free of HIV and has been free, you know, since the transplant. And she went off of um, HIV drugs more than 15 months ago and has had no signs of the virus. Joining us now is Betsy McKay, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Betsy. It's nice to be with you. Well, uh, we had another uh, advancement in the fight against HIV. We appear to have a woman in New York City who seems to have been cured from her HIV infection. She'll join a small group of other people who've kind of gone through this. And, you know, researchers hope this could be a roadmap to help other people. Although these circumstances still kind of prohibit from being used in a broader sense, but still very good news. So, Betsy, uh, tell us about this woman in New York City. Yeah, she's actually, she's from the, in the New York City area, but she was treated in New York City. She didn't want to be identified other than someone who is middle-aged and of mixed race. So she, she had leukemia, acute myeloid leukemia, which is a, a cancer of the blood forming cell, of blood forming cells. And she needed treatment for that leukemia. She also was living with HIV. And so a few years ago, Her doctors told her she needed a stem cell transplant for the cancer, but offered her the option of getting a new type of transplant, which might possibly, in addition to curing the leukemia, might cure her HIV. And that's exactly what happened. What she received was a stem cell transplant using, instead of just bone marrow, which other patients who have been cured were given, she was given umbilical cord uh, cells a transplant of um, stem cells from umbilical cord blood, which don't require an exact match with the donor. But these cells had a genetic mutation, which basically blocks uh, HIV from, from entering cells. And so the transplant was successful. You know, these cells kind of took over her immune system. And so she is now free of HIV and has been free, you know, since the transplant. And she went off of um, HIV drugs more than 15 months ago and has had no signs of the virus. Yeah, Yeah. all very good news. And and so, okay, so she got to basically two stem cell transplants, one from a relative, 
that would be to uh, help fight the, the leukemia. And the other one, as you mentioned, the umbilical cord blood from a newborn who she wasn't related to. And the reason why it's so great is because that blood, that umbilical cord blood, the stem cells from there, don't need to be a, a perfect genetic match. It's a little broader in range. So that's why this is uh, uh, such good news here. So the reason this, this transplant is made up of two different types of cells. The, the most important one is the umbilical cord cells because they don't need as direct a match. She was also given some stem cells from a relative to help the transplant take hold faster. So that's why there were two instead of one. But the most important one is that, that it was these right. cord blood cells and that they did contain, like transplants given to other patients previously, they did contain um, cells with this genetic mutation. Yeah, and so we've seen this happen before to great news as well, but transplants still overall a little risky and costly, and they're really only an option for people that uh, need the treatment for other diseases, such as the cancer, like what we're talking about. So it's not really available to everybody just yet. Uh, so tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, exactly. This isn't something that you could just start giving to HIV patients um, in the U.S. or around the world. It's dangerous. It's expensive. I mean, it's really, it's something that this woman and other patients were being given for leukemia or lymphoma. But the goal here is to, uh, you know, the reason this is interesting to scientists is that, or who are pursuing a cure is first, any patient who's cured of HIV is kind of inspiring to the field, right? It right. shows this can be done. The second thing is that with this woman's case and with the others before, there's there are clues that can be mined by researchers who are working on developing gene therapies that would be able to, without a transplant, confer this, this same mutation, it's called the CCR5 mutation, to HIV patients. I mean, what if you could develop something like a vaccine, you know, or, or an injection that would, you know, deliver into your body a gene therapy, essentially instructions to create this mutation in your body. And this is something that's still, it's not, you know, ready yet. It's something that is in development and will take years. But her case is very interesting in that it was a successful transplant. It took hold right away. And this mutation is normally found in a subset of Caucasians. She is of mixed race. Because she got the cord blood, it didn't require that exact close match. So her success shows that first, transplants can be given to a broader number of people. But secondly, there are lessons to be learned about this mutation that may help in development of gene therapies that could be applicable for a much broader right. range of people, people who don't have cancer and don't need a transplant. And when we talk about this and, you know, we, the, the word cure is thrown around, what's the threshold for that definition? Because there's a lot of people that have gone in remission for a long time, years, and obviously they can uh, still be on those antiviral drugs and all that. Uh, so let's say the doctors are saying they're hopeful that this is, she has been cured. You know, what's that threshold? What are, what are we looking at? Well, it's a really good question. You know, I asked a researcher this yesterday and um, this person responded, I think cure is a matter of definition. When are you cured from cancer? Right. You know, a similar thing. Obviously, one threshold for cancer is five years. If you're in remission, five years, you're cured. And some people are talking about that for HIV as well. You know, in the field, doctors who treat these patients really shy from the, the term cure. They don't always want to say cure. That's people like us saying they're cured. The term they use more generally is 
remission or long-term remission. But some are saying five years. So the first patient to be cured, um, Timothy Ray Brown, more than a decade and a half, or about a decade and a half ago, he was considered cured. He didn't have a resurgence of HIV. He did, unfortunately, die in 2020 of a relapse of his um, cancer, but he had remained HIV-free. And um, two other patients are also in remission after their transplants. Well, this New York patient is on her way. She's been free of leukemia for more than four years. And, you know, obviously she stopped taking her HIV medication in early April 2020. So best of luck to her. And, you know, obviously the researchers looking heavily into this to see what they can apply to other people, other treatments. Betsy McKay, senior writer at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. The public humiliation of my client and others in that arrest was wrong. It was illegal. And the Marine Corps' attempt to try to influence the outcome of this case and poison the jury pool. Joining us now is Emily Green, reporter for Vice News. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Thanks so much. I wanted to talk about an interesting story you wrote up uh, inside a massive human smuggling ring led by U.S. Marines. So this is a story that goes back to July of 2019. You know, it was happening obviously before that, but uh, this is when a lot of arrests were made in this case. But basically, there was uh, a bunch of U.S. Marines that were stationed on Camp Pendleton. This is right over there by San Diego. And uh, a lot of them were going down to the border, picking up immigrants and, uh, you know, driving them inland as, as far as they can and letting them go. This uh, They were making a lot of money on this. You were able to speak to some of the recruiters that were recruiting some of these Marines, and it was really all about money. They were making a lot of money on the side, their salaries as Marines were probably uh, on the lower end of the spectrum, and they saw this as a way to make some more, uh, some extra cash there. So a lot of interesting stuff in this story. Emily, uh, just uh, walk us through some of this. What do we know about this? So the story initially broke in 2019, and that's when two U.S. Marines were arrested for smuggling migrants. And those arrests unraveled what turned out to be a sprawling scheme, a sprawling scandal in which more than a dozen Marines based at Camp Pendleton were eventually arrested and charged with smuggling migrants. And then the story kind of dropped, I mean, for for various reasons, including perhaps even the pandemic, and I picked it up. So what we know now uh, is basically how this scheme came into being, how it operated, and also how it fell apart and what the Navy did about it, and the Navy's strategy for dealing with the scandal, which backfired enormously. Yeah, the the end of the story will kind of shock a lot of people. We'll get to that uh, in in a moment. Let's talk about the two main players in this, these uh, two very young Marines who kind of became the face of all of this, and how they were recruited. A lot of this stuff was done kind of word-of-mouth recruitment. A lot of the communications between the smugglers and the Marines were done through Snapchat because you know, the Snapchat messages erase after a period of time. Uh, so tell us how uh, this all got started and, and then the job, right? How, you know, they were to drive to the, toward the border, pick people up. They would come hiding, uh, running out of bushes and then boom, just drive them inland basically. Right. So what it started with was recruiter, a civilian by the name of Francisco Rojas. He was 20 years old. He had been smuggling migrants for about two years and he was then promoted 
to being a recruiter, i.e. he was looking for people to do the job he had done, drive migrants for a few hours into the interior of the United States. One day, a friend of his comes to him and says, I know someone who's interested in the job. That person ended up being a Marine at Camp Pendleton. That Marine then put the recruiter in touch with yet more Marines and more Marines. And very quickly, Francisco Rojas was working with at least 10 Marines based at Camp Pendleton, sending them out on runs almost daily to pick up migrants and then drive them into the interior of the country. I think one of the things that's worth noting is that none of the Marines were driving into Mexico and then crossing the border into the U.S. They were instead picking up the migrants at the very southern tip of the United States and driving them into the interior of the country near Los Angeles, near San Diego. And the reason that I think this is important is because so many people think that smuggling ends right when a migrant steps foot on the U.S. border. And that's not, in fact, the case. I would argue that one of the most perilous parts of the journey are the 100 miles, those first 100 miles in the United States, because the migrants have to pass through or try and evade various border patrol checkpoints. And so the Marines' job was to pick up the migrants, put them in the backseat or even in the trunk of the car, and then they would drive through these immigration checkpoints with the hope that they would be never checked and that they could get through cleanly. And in fact, that is what happened. So well, their uniforms made for the perfect cover, right? You know, you, you think they're an upstanding service member, right? And you're just going to wave people through right away. And that's kind of what they were banking on mostly. I think even the instructions right. for the Marines were to wear some type of uniform or fatigues or something like that. I want to be careful here because it's not clear to me to what extent the U.S. Marines were in fact wearing their uniforms. But they didn't need to wear the uniforms for it to be clear that they were Marines. They're in San Diego. They have that Marine, clean-cut, buzzed haircut look. And not only that, they're often driving cars with Marine Corps stickers on the cars and maybe have their cap, their Marine Corps caps, in the front of the car. So even when they weren't perhaps in their uniform, it was obvious that they were Marines. And that is indeed what the smuggler was was banking on. And he, in fact, told me this incredible quote. I'm just going to read it to you. He said to me, having people who work for the government going out and picking up for us was a brilliant idea. And we knew nobody would suspect anything. Right. So that, yes, I mean, the deal, the crux of it was that these guys were U.S. Marines. They were armed personnel of the United States government, and nobody would suspect them of smuggling migrants. Let's talk a little bit about the money aspect, because obviously that's a huge component to this. So we know the pipeline to smuggle people from other parts of the uh, the world is very long. So smugglers would get paid on average something between $11,000 and $14,000. This is like the, the initial smugglers. Then they paid guys like Rojas that you mentioned another fee, a few thousand dollars. Then he'd recruit the Marines, he'd pay them a few hundred dollars. I think it was $500 for each migrant, a bonus if you got three. So you'd get like 750 bucks. So that was kind of the pipeline of money that was being distributed there. Yeah. I mean, so essentially for for Central Americans or for folks coming from Central America, the price now is, the going price is around eleven to 14000 That's about double the price from five years ago. And that's because it's just gotten so much harder to get into the United States. Rojas made $2,500 per migrant that was successfully entered the United States. He, in turn, paid the Marines $500 
per migrant. Now that's that that uh, $750, it wasn't that there was a bonus, but that essentially the Marines generally went out in pairs. And there was a reason for this. One would normally be the driver, and then there would be a Spanish-speaking Marine who could coordinate with the Mexican side of the smuggling network. So if they transported three Marines, that was $1,500 split between the two of them, $750 each. So uh, when all of this started falling apart, you know, two of these Marines, they went out, a border patrol agent kind of saw some some suspicious behavior driving toward the border, then making a U-turn, driving right back. They reported it in, they caught these two Marines and everything started falling apart right away. Everybody opened up, basically said, you know, admitted guilt throughout the whole thing and they were arrested. And then this leads us to this kind of the big fumble that the Marines did when they were trying to, when they kind of, you know, were able to see that a lot of other Marines were involved in this, they kind of called everybody together and they named people to come forward and then they arrested them after that. And that was really the big folly for them too. Right. I mean, that was, so they said, what we're going to do is we're going to shame these Marines. And so they called together the whole battalion, which is around 800 Marines. And just as you said, one by one, they named these 16 Marines, had them come forward, and then they proceeded to arrest them very publicly in front of all of their colleagues. And what really backfired was that one of the commanding officers of the battalion during the arrest, he basically insulted the Marines that were that were being arrested. He said they were eroding our readiness, jeopardizing our success in battle, endangering all of our lives and were a distraction to leadership and readiness. And a defense attorney for one of those Marines said, hey, under military law, that is illegal. It's illegal under a principle called unlawful command influence. And that attorney said, by insulting the Marines in such a public way, by carrying out this public arrest, the commanding officers were seeking to influence the court-martial process. In other words, they were signaling these Marines are guilty, and therefore the arrested Marines would not be able to get a fair trial. What's so fascinating to me is that because of this public arrest, the charges against virtually all of the Marines completely unraveled. The military was forced to drop them. It was an enormous blunder on the part of the Navy. There was the two uh, Marines that did get caught, Byron Law and uh, the other, I forget his first name, Salazar Quintanero is his last name. They kind of became the the faces of this while all the other Marines got charges dropped and everything. You know, they were sentenced not that much. It doesn't seem like 18 months for one, 12 months for another. And uh, so now I think they're out already. And a lot of these Marines, you know, what happened to them after you you mentioned one of them became a model. Another one's an insurance broker. They're trying to move on with their lives now. But, uh, you know, it's it's still hard to kind of let go of what happened through the smuggling ring. Yeah. You know, I tried to reach out to various former Marines who were part of this scandal and not a single one of them wanted to talk to me. And I really, really tried. I can't blame them. I don't think there's much incentive for them to talk to me. They want to put this chapter behind them. They're trying to recreate their lives and not have their their names in the media. But I'm fascinated and would love to know what's what's going on with them now. Emily Green, reporter for Vice News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.